And it's a bit like finding a black box in an airline wreckage. We get to go back and find out what really happened, not what we were fed, what was actually going on in the cockpit. And that's what I wanted to do in this book because Olsen has been suffocated under the Anglo narrative of the lazy outsider. He was lazy. He was up tossing metal bins for four hours every morning before he got to training. That's Patrick Skeen, the author of The Big O, the biography of rugby league champion Olsen Filipina. More from him in a moment. Now, it's no secret that I'm not very interested in sport, but I wanted a sports biography in the mix for this series because an athlete's life is full of just as many challenges, setbacks and victories as a politician's or an artist's. Problem is that too often sports biographies are written by fans who give a varnished official view that reads like PR. But then my friend Amanda Smith, who presents Sporty on Radio National, recommended a biography that stood out from the pack. The Big O is the biography of rugby league player Olsen Filipina, a former professional rugby league footballer from Auckland who moved to Sydney in 1980 to play for the Balmain Tigers. His heritage is Maori and Samoan, making him a pioneer of the wave of Pacifica players that are now such a force in the game. While he was playing rugby, he worked a garbage run which earned him the nickname The Galloping Garbo. I loved that. The book succeeds because Patrick Skeen broadens the story into one about Maori culture and, through the contrasting of two very different styles of coaching, he sheds light on leadership and motivation while addressing head-on the racism that Filipina had to endure throughout his career. Patrick, welcome to Life Sentences. Uh, greetings, uh, Caroline. It's wonderful to be here. Now, I want to start by asking you, are you a reader of sports biographies? Very much so. Any sports biographies that have a social history element, that's what I'm, I'm really interested in that shows some sort of cultural nuance on why people play the game or what impact the game has on a, on a certain community. That's the, the type of stories that excite me. I, I consider myself a, a social narrative historian and I'm very interested in shifting mindsets as well. So I've seen some commentary that says you get two for one out of my book. You get a, a cultural competence handbooked wrapped in uh, a story about the Pacific Revolution, uh, wrapped in Olsen Filipina's story. Uh, recently, 60 of the books were purchased for the NRL Health and Wellbeing Conference and given to every practitioner. And that's probably been my most exciting moment when it actually crossed from being a story that people read and put on the shelf to a textbook that will be reread because th the ultimate information transmission comes through stories and uh, Olsen can serve Without, without the context, without it being the life and times of Olsen Filipina, it's a grim read, uh, as all pioneer stories are, because without the context of what their sacrifice led to, it's just someone being held back or abused or pathways being closed to them. But when you realise that they were the first through and the first one through the wall often gets bloody, but it, the whole thing works when their sacrifices lead to something and, and then those pioneers are given their appropriate place in history um, I mean, Australia should be telling Olsen Filipina stories. 35 years. I gave everyone else 35 years head start to tell this story and, and no one got there. And some people were saying, well, why now? Well, why now? 48% of the NRL are now Pacifica and Māori, plus 12% Indigenous. 60% of the NRL uh, playing stocks are now regional Indigenous. That's unheard of for a game here or for a game anywhere in the world, even the NBA, which is 80% African-American or, or, or African Afro-Diaspora. But that's 15% of the population. The Polynesians are, are 
between two and three percent of Australia. So it's it's an unprecedented situation, and no one um, has either felt the permission or the capability or looked at the risk of examining this phenomenon because it's got two sides to the story. But I thought, why not tell it from the guy that came through? This group's not going anywhere. They're not changing. So you have a an almost reverse colonization of the NRL where a lot of the Anglo-Celtic guys are getting Polynesian tattoos, using Polynesian slang. <laughs> R&B and hip-hop are now the uh, the music of the day for rugby league where it used to be hard rock and country for the country boys. So we're talking about one of the great um, cultural blends from the region is happening right now in rugby league. Just for the uninitiated, so for someone who came to this book cold, like me, and who is not someone who follows league, who is Olsen Filipina? So Olsen Filipina is a Samoan and Māori. His mother's Māori, his father's a Samoan, and he grew up in South Auckland. And South Auckland was really constructed in many ways to give um, cheap homes to the workers, the Polynesian workers who were coming to to build the roads and to do a lot of the, the menial labour in, 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 in Auckland as part of the Auckland's growth miracle. So they started working in the factories next to the working class white people in Auckland and they fell in love with rugby league. And this new blend of Tongan, Samoan, Māori, Fijian, it got a new name called Pacifica. That was the birth of Pacifica and Olsen was the first Pacifica hero. Olsen's famous for having big thighs and being incredibly powerful, just, just like a forward in rugby league, but also having the skills of a back. So it's this new hybrid model. And he was the superhero of the Auckland League in the late 70s. And people were saying, you're too big for the fish pond here, Olsen. You need to go and try your luck in Sydney. And he's, you know, the first of the mummy's boy footballers. Now, a lot of the footballers are soft and quite emotional and, you know, live with their mums and grandmas. But back then, that didn't happen when it was a clear majority Anglo-Celtic player base. It was hyper-masculine. It was unemotional. So Olsen's gone from a world where, you know, New Zealand was 20 or 30 years ahead in race relations in, in many ways, and Australia wasn't. Australia had just come out of, it was five years out of the white Australia policy ending, and they'd really had no diversity to learn from, and it was a monoculture, and the Italians and Greeks had been, you know, basically told to fit in. It was an assimilation culture. So Olsen lands in 1980 as New Zealand's best player coming to, to try his luck in the big, the big city of Sydney. And he started with Balmain Tigers. He played five years for the Balmain Tigers, and then he went on to become a superstar for the Kiwis. But between those two bookends, he, he went through the classic pioneer's barriers of racism. He suffered serious depression when he was here. He couldn't understand racism the way it was. And Polynesians, as we've learned, when you laugh at their surname or you criticize them, they take that very deeply because they're a, an extended family culture who, who worships their parents and they feel like their parents are being insulted. So you've got this cultural clash where we will mock surnames for fun. Billy Birmingham had eight number one albums in a row in Australia, basically mocking sports people's surnames. So you've got all these points of cultural clash as Olsen joins. And now it's quite normalized. I mean, if you told me 20 years ago, that rugby league players would hold hands after a game and sing songs, sing hymns to each other, you'd say, you know, you're, you're dreaming. But it's happening right now. 
How much does the story of Olsen remind you of the story of Adam Goods? I mean, what's different between those two stories in terms of the racism? Adam Goods was the first Aboriginal to use a public platform like Australian of the Year to, to talk about it. Um, he was a reluctant hero, Adam Goods, so he's definitely got that in, 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 in common with Olsen. And if we look at you know the classic hero's journey archetype, it's a reluctant hero that eventually heeds the call but really doesn't want to be there, but they have all the qualities to pull off the hero's journey and slay the dragon and bring back the elixir to their people that, yes, you can do this. And so both of them complied with the hero's journey very, very sweetly, and they had mentors that helped them along the way. Um, the difference was that the crowd was generally racist towards Olsen, but you felt they were trying to boo Adam Goods out of the game. There was a venom, and uh, Walid Ali said, you know, the crowd is booing their discomfort. That Adam Goods could survive what he could survive will empower all of the Aboriginal kids coming through because no one will ever have it as bad as him as the first through the wall. Olsen um, and a player called Larry Korowa, an Aboriginal player and a few others, copped terrible racism um, and took the the brunt of the first wave of anger of the outsider trying to, to, to break in. Both of them had to go through so much to play the sport they loved. Patrick, given that you've described Olsen as a reluctant hero, I'm curious about whether he agreed to this biography easily, given that he is shy and private. Um, his career is over now. He's retired. How did you approach him and how did you structure the deal between you? Because you went for something quite unusual. It's unusual, but I don't think it should be unusual. Um, I wrote a story on Olsen in The Guardian. So I write for The Guardian occasionally what's called the Forgotten Stories series. And I dig up from uh, archives and from mythology and the oral history stories that I think should be resurfaced that say something about Australia. A lot of the time they're pioneer stories. I'm particularly fascinated in, in the first ones that come through I th I've, because they often open the door and they're responsible for significant cultural shifts. And And my plan was to write 10 or 15 forgotten stories, and whichever one went the most viral or got the greatest audience response, I would write a book on. So I wrote a story on Ian Roberts, which was very well received. Um, Cecil Romali, who's the first Aboriginal and Asian Wallaby rugby union from 1938, uh, wrote one on Rex Sellers, the first of Indian blood to play cricket for Australia, an Anglo-Indian. But no one even got close to Olsen. It went wild on Facebook, and I just saw the love, and I thought, this is... It's a crime against the cultural memory of, of rugby league that Olsen isn't, isn't remembered and given his appropriate place in history. But then if I wrote just, as I said earlier, if I wrote just the book on Olsen without putting it in the enormous context that surrounds him that's led to this phenomena, it really is a sad story. And it's a bit like finding a black box in an airline wreckage. We get to go back and find out what really happened, not what we were fed, what was actually going on in the cockpit. And that's what I wanted to do in this book because Olsen has been suffocated under the Anglo narrative of the lazy outsider. He was lazy. He was up tossing metal bins for four hours every morning before he got to training. And it's the fascinating cultural clash between this free-spirited, exuberant Polynesian who wanted to entertain because in New Zealand they didn't have poker machines underwriting the rugby league clubs there. They only relied on their gate takings from spectators. So they had to pay an attractive brand or nobody got paid in New Zealand. 
and he came to Australia and it was all it had all gone scientific and defensive. So he rubs up against Frank Stanton, his Balmain coach, who is the living, breathing manifestation of Australia's 150 years of prioritizing the egalitarian part of our culture. Nobody gets special treatment, which flies completely in the face of how, how talent is managed now. Talent is all managed on a portfolio approach. Everybody's uh, you know an individual with their own needs. You shout at some. That, that's the very worst thing you can do for others. Some like the kick in the pants. Others, you've lost them. Everything has to be custom. It's about 60% general and generic and 40% customized now is a figure I read. So that is a significant cultural clash that I've really tried hard not to be too judgmental, but Frank comes out as a bit of a villain here. But there are other footballers that say Frank was the greatest influence on their life, Anglo-Celtic. So Frank just had no way of uh, of learning how to deal with diversity because there was none. So Olsen and I went for lamb chops up in Ride Mall and I've always known that the way to a Polynesian's heart is through particularly lamb and, and red meat and, and over the act of eating, um, you know, you can start to build trust and lay down what your plans are. But I agree with Olsen to go 50-50 on the royalties because part one part of the book is, you know, he doesn't do financially well out of rugby league because of a a cultural nuance, and so he can have uh, you know a little bit of pocket. Writers don't earn much these days, but you know get a little bit of uh, pocket money out of the book. Also, and I have fifty-fifty partners, and he's you know highly motivated to come and do things. He's sixty-three now, um, still comes out and um, does some various events with me. One of the things that you do is you provide us with the kind of explanation of how a Maori family works in terms of what the obligations of a good son are. And one of the strong characters in the book is obviously Olsen's father. I think he's called Aloisi. Yeah. Okay. So Aloisi is an alcoholic. He's a gambler. He's such a violent man that at one stage he almost kills his son. Um, did you talk to Olsen's father? No, he had he had passed away. Ah. And that was a very difficult piece for me to write. But it was Olsen's partner, Leslie. Um, she's of that, the, you know, the new model that you can't change something unless you talk about it. She's very much, she's a very, very strong hero in this book, um, as is Olsen's mother. But Leslie said, you have to put it in there or you're not doing sissies, you know, sissy absorbed domestic violence on and off. And it, was, it wasn't relentless, but it was, um, you know, there's a lot of reports of, you know, it's the classic uh, Jake the Muss from Once Were Warriors archetype. It's the man who uh, is violent and, you know, Deepak Chopra once said that the violence is the shadow energy of impotence. And you've got a lot of migrants coming down, kings in Samoa, kings in Tonga, and just reduced to scut work. They have their first bit of racism. And they feel shame and they take it out on those closest to them. And it's this terrifying, terrifying cycle. So his father was the life of the party with the guitar, but then he would gamble the money away, feel the shame that comes from 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 that. And then he would be unapproachable and the, the mood swings would kick in and he'd just take it out on his family. And he almost killed his son, Olsen. We're almost not telling this story um, because of one night of extreme violence that Olsen was, was lucky enough to survive. 
Olsen, as a good son, is expected to send money home, these remittances, which are very similar to a practice that we see across a lot of Asia. So money is an important part of the dynamic, isn't it, between father and son, this expectation? We're talking about the the drilling down of an actual socialist family system in which money is, whoever's making money, distributes it often evenly out through an entire extended family structure. So, for example, Israel Folau, the Tongan superstar who played Aussie rules, rugby union and rugby league, was on a million dollars for the Broncos, gave his entire salary to his parents and was given back $150 a week pocket money. (laughs) And I've asked some Polynesians, what if you don't? What if you say, I'm not part of the system? And they say, you're an outcast. The whole point of that system is the wealthy share with the poor and you're only as strong as your as your weakest link. And that's a system that survives because on those islands, tornadoes come through and just blow everything down. So whoever survives has – there's this sharing that's seared into their DNA. Um, I'll share the shirt off my back, boots with you. It's just it, – it's, it's, it's relentless. So that happens with money as well. So all the Polynesians – there was always this complaint against Olsen that he only had one set or two sets of clothes. Everything was sent home. He would just live – the most Spartan monk-like existence to the point where family had to intervene and say half goes towards buying a house in Ride and half goes back to your father. Because when the system works and you have honest relatives distributing the money, it's a truly beautiful and wondrous thing. And it gets people off the FOMO affluenza cycle because they're not worried about keeping up with the Joneses. They're just worried about helping people. Mm. On the flip side, when it doesn't work, in this case, LOAC had a gambling problem and just spent all of Olsen's money, um, you psychologically scar that person for the rest of their life because when they they thought they were doing a great thing, uh, distributing money down to the family and it just went on the horses. So you feel like a lot of my suffering and pain and I went without and I sacrificed was for nothing. And that's something Olsen's had to bear. And it it really psychologically scarred him that his father could do that to him in addition to physical beating as it was like his father on every level impacted his life negatively. Early on, you initiate us as readers into a game that I have never heard of, well, that's not entirely surprising, called Bull Rush. So for those, again, who don't know what that game is, can you explain it at its most basic? So Bull Rush, a.k.a. Red Rover, a.k.a. Cocky Laura uh, down here, British Bulldog is another name for it. They're all the same. So that is a the old playground full contact sport where you'd have two people in the middle, people would all gather at one end and they would try and run from one end to the other without being brought to the ground. And every time someone gets brought to the ground, they add to the army of people in the middle until you're left with one person to run and everybody trying to tackle that person. And Olsen was the king of bull rush in his playground in a place called Mungri East in, in South Auckland. And he loved it. So this fun game would actually do a lot of the heavy lifting for rugby union and rugby league scouts because they could come and watch Bull Rush and they could see someone's appetite for contact. And Olsen would live for it. So they would crash each other at recess. Olsen would put kids in the sick bay, bruised and, and, and broken, and his shirt would be ripped. But that was his his happy space. And I took Olsen to the Mangari East Primary School where he's a superhero and I, and I took him to the green grass and he just broke down. It was just such a, 
a space of beautiful memories for him that, you know, he uh, a tear came to his eye at how much joy. And that was where he found respect and that was where he found his place because everyone, everyone would make their mark in the neighbourhood if they could tackle Big Olsen. He had this formidable physique, which was obviously a great weapon, but at the same time, because he was quite a big man, well, he was a very big man, he was what we would now call fat-shamed, wasn't he? He was fat-shamed, and he was the first Polynesian we saw that was very, very bottom-heavy. It's a very normal thing now with that low centre of gravity, and there's been a number of players who are much bigger than Olsen was for that template. But he was the first, and the, and the, the media and the coaches and the people had never seen a bottom-heavy person that could be fit. So people automatically assumed he was fat, and that then tied nicely into the lazy, laziness narrative that people would spread about Olsen, and that led to this word enigma, which Olsen laboured under, that he's an enigma. One day he's hot, one day he's cold, and I've gone to great lengths in this book to try and uh, debunk the enigma theory. But it's interesting, isn't it, that idea of him being lazy, because basically what I get from your book is that certainly under Frank Stanton in particular, he was bad at the training because the training was inappropriate. So you don't ask a man who's built like Olsen to do road runs, do you? So because he hated the road runs, he did them badly, but he wasn't by any means lazy. And he was out there playing tennis when he wasn't, as you say, working as a garbo, lifting metal bins for four hours every morning. Well, the right coach has learnt that if you involve a ball with Olsen, you can get him to do twice as much training as if you would in, in any other way. And by the time he got to Norths in 1986, he had a culturally competent coach who just did ball work with Olsen. And he would do hours and he was super fit, but he just wasn't doing sort of pointless running and obstacle courses and all sorts of things. Just some people, they just want to be with the ball, honing their skills, building competence, acquiring new skills, just re the relentless training that we do that we do now. But he didn't want to do that. So he clashed. And one time he said, you know, I'm not training for a marathon. And he got a $3,000 fine. That's a lot of money back then. So Frank Stanton would constantly make an example of Olsen as a arrestive province that needed to be punished. There's no secret in your book about the fact that when he first gets to Sydney, he is profoundly, profoundly unhappy. And then whenever he has the chance to go back to New Zealand, he doesn't always take it because of this extraordinary fear of flying, which is somehow, I don't know, difficult to reconcile with this great big brute of a man in a sense. But he has this fear of flying. Why was coming to Sydney so hard on him? Why was he so lonely? And why did he find it so difficult to be away from his family? First, he was a mummy's boy. So it was very difficult. But it was his mother that had to convince him to leave. And, you know, he was dragooned. He didn't want to, to, to go. But his mother saw that he's he'd outstayed his... He was too big for the Auckland League and that he should use his talents to try and further the family name and, and, and all the Māori mothers there, all the Polynesian mothers are saying, Olsen's got to go to Sydney. Some guys loved coming to Sydney. Some guys hated it. Olsen had toured Australia in 1978, two years before, and he could not believe, he said, people were casually racist to my face. They assumed I didn't speak English and I couldn't believe how condescending people were to me that I just didn't want to be around it. That plus the traffic 
And you had Australians, so an article came out saying Olsen doesn't want to live here and Australians got so offended that given the opportunity to play rugby league in Sydney would not want to take it. It was actually an affront, an offence to all of the kids who who couldn't take it. So Australians were very fragile um, at the time about their identity and they just thought Australia was the the centrifugal force of the game the was the capital and how could you not want to come to Rome or or Istanbul <laughs> so he didn't want to come but he had to come and it was his mother that said Olsen wanted to come home a lot of the time in a one stage so homesick he generated an $800 phone bill one month just calling his mother now, we've talked a little bit about Frank Stanton as this kind of very old school, very um, rigid, kind of unbending, difficult coach that he came up against and was a source of real misery, I think, for Olsen. But the flip side of that, the counter of Frank is a wonderful coach that you talk about called Graham Lowe, who had pioneering methods, which absolutely were the antithesis of Frank's and really brought the best out in Olsen. And and he did some really interesting things, like you mentioned that he would talk to Olsen's mum, Sissy, before a match. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of Graham's methods and where he got these ideas from? Was he reading about sports training in America, which was obviously very far ahead of ours, or where was he getting these ideas? What an amazing man to drop into the Australian landscape, New Zealand coach Graham Lowe. Really didn't play his himself um, at any decent level, which, number one, puts you out of the boys' club, so you've got an extra barrier right there to come through as a coach. Started with eighth-grade Odahu in South Auckland, worked his way all the way up to first-grade Odahu, won two premierships with them, came across to Brisbane, picked the very worst club in Brisbane in 1979, by 1980, he'd won them a premiership in an unbelievable upset. The first guy to talk about love as an Australian coach, so he would talk to the guys, he'd use vulnerability. So they, they were the first where they were sitting around talking about things, Aussie macho guys crying, but he knew that's what breaks bonds. You know, Don't be macho, tell us what you fear and we can try and address it. What's ailing you outside football? What problems are you in? He said, I've been a lawyer. I'm turning up to police stations late at night. I'm getting involved in family fights. But the loyalty I get in return from these guys when I've cleared up whatever's bothering them outside was was amazing. So New Zealand is 20 to 25 years ahead of Australia in their cultural competence because this first wave of white players over there are playing with the Pacific guys and they're, they're seeing this new exuberance. They're seeing guys pull out guitars in 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 the in clubhouses and he said we were actually very shy the white working class was shy humble working class guys and he said they brought us out of our shell which is an amazing insight for me so he said i've 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 seen what these guys i know what's coming in australia and i know that these guys are all controlled through their parents and their parents are a massive reference point so if you want to get the best out of a polynesian you involve the pastor I mean, who would think of going and talking to the priest, um, talking to the mother because they're calling the mother every day. So one amazing part of the book is before Olsen is picked out of reserve grade to, to play against the great Wally Lewis, who's just been crowned the greatest rugby league player in the world. The gold, first ever Adidas golden boot was Wally. Olsen's absolutely going sour on the vine in reserve grade at Eastern Suburbs, yet Graham Lowe knows. Graham Lowe says... I saw what Olsen did to me when I was playing in New Zealand. He's a genius. Even if you see it once, it's your job to bring it out as the coach. 
So when he uh, was about to put him against Wally Lewis, which he knew would attract ridicule, how can you have reserve grade to take the king? He spoke to Olsen's mother for an hour. Once he'd convinced her that she, th- and, and she thought he could beat Wally, he came back and told Olsen. He said Olsen was 10 foot tall after that because my mother wants me to do it. My mother believes I can do it. I'm going to go out and take Wally. And he famously got the, the player of the series from reserve grade in eastern suburbs and, and a display of power rugby league that completely revolutionized the game from now on. Jonah Lomu's number one hero was Olsen. But Olsen went straight over the top of guys or he went around guys. He had skills plus power. One of the tiny cultural details in your book that really intrigued me was you you talk about the haka and the importance of the haka. And we all take that for granted now as this fantastic psychological weapon that New Zealanders have when they're playing anybody. But you say that um, one of the radical moves that came about during Olsen's period was to perform the haka at the end of a match rather than at the beginning. Can you explain that? Because I would have thought that the psychological intimidation factor of the haka at the beginning is crucial. The problem was that in the 1970s, New Zealand was getting beaten so badly that it was getting marginalised as a bit of a jokey song and dance. It was actually being mocked by opponents who didn't know any better. So they said the haka will now be earned through victory and this will, because we're summoning our ancestors and we're getting beaten quite badly. So we'll have it as a reward rather than just a, a compulsory thing. And if you have a look at the early hakas in the 70s, both union and league, they, it's like a bad disco. It's not this ferocious thing you see today. Go online and look at the 1973 rugby union haka. It's, it's so bad. It's comic. They're giving their best and you can see, but there's this gap. So they reclaimed it made it more ferocious. And you see the New Zealand rugby league guys are the first one to do the big eyes. It becomes this intimidating, but it becomes an earned privilege. Once New Zealand has got competent again and it was respected and seen as this amazing thing, they brought it back to the front that you see today. But it was revitalizing it, giving it meaning, making it an earned right, and then returning it to its natural place. Patrick, tell me about Olsen's job as a garbo very physically demanding initially because it was manual but by the end of his career it's become mechanized and he's still doing it because he loves the morning run um he didn't need the money surely what was it about being a garbo that he enjoyed he loved getting up early two thirty, three o'clock was a normal thing for him and i think you can train your body clock that's uh, that's a normal thing so he loved getting up early. He loved going against the traffic. He loved the camaraderie of the bins. In the old days when there were bins, a lot of yelling to each other, come on, you're being slack. The truck had to wait while someone someone lifted those huge metal, angry, full bins into the truck. People used to seek out that job as a way of getting fit. Wow. It's like a four-hour workout back in the day. So Olsen, you see some pictures of him without his shirt. He's got these huge traps and shoulder muscles from doing that then technologies kicked in and quite thankfully for Olsen technology kicked in because his knees and elbows and shoulders are all gone from his collision style of rugby rugby league playing professionally or semi-professionally for 15 years across New Zealand and Australia now he's up up in the cabin of, of a truck and he just it's about 1200 motions on a on, on, on a dipstick <laughs> where, where he activates the claw to lift the bins 
and he's on his own now. So he puts on the radio, he listens to a bit of talkback and some music, and he's on his own with his thoughts. ABC 730 Report did a beautiful story on him where they got up in the truck with him. It's on YouTube if, you, if, if you'd like to look it up. And it just shows a man so comfortable, so happy. He earns his uh, money. He lives very humbly. He gives a lot of his money now down to his grandkids to help them out. So he's still got that Polynesian gene of, of using any surplus to, to help his family out. And he's living a very happy life. Uh, his son was in jail um, for armed robbery and just got out of jail in September this year. So he feels like his time in Australia is coming to an end. He wants to retire with his partner in Auckland. Um, with a little bit of, you know, saved his saved Aussie money, and then he'll be on an Aussie pension over there. I'd like Olsen to become knighted in New Zealand. There's a bit of a movement over there. There's no rugby league players have ever been knighted. Lots of rugby union pioneers like Sir Brian Williams and Sir Michael Jones are Polynesian pioneers in rugby union. So there's a little groundswell coming for Olsen to be knighted. So that would be a beautiful outcome for the book. Patrick, it's clear from talking to you that you really love this guy and that you spent three years writing this biography, I think, and, and clearly for you it was a labour of love. I mean, it must have been a very meaningful thing to write about someone that you admired so much. What's next for you? Because, I mean, this is not your, your day job. I know that you've written these stories for The Guardian, but are you thinking of writing another biography? Is there someone that you've got your eye on? Yes, so I'm all about resurfacing the stories that deserve contextual treatment. So what I'd like to write on is, and I'm preparing for, is the, the 2016 gold medal winning Rugby Sevens women's team, which is an ama- it's the most amazing story. So you've got the coach, the reluctant coach, getting approached in 2012 and saying, I don't want to do that, women's sport, which is beautiful. So that sets him right up for all the journey we've all had to undertake on women's sport. So we're, we're riding with a guy that undergoes the, uh, you know, an alchemy-style chemical reaction. But his condition of coming back in, because he was this uh, prodigal son that just wandered the world playing rugby in all sorts of different systems and had all of this information that someone that just stayed in Australia wouldn't, wouldn't have. All of a sudden, a gold medal starts getting dangled around for Rugby Union, the first time the Sevens was ever in, in, in the Olympic Games. So Tim Walsh came back and he said, I'm going to use this gold medal to get the very best athletic talent from all women around Australia. I'm going to, I'm going to assemble this team of alpha women from all the other sports. And they can go back, but they're going, for three years, they're going to be rugby players, and I'm going to damn Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. I'm going, to t- <laughs> I'm going to teach these alpha females how to play rugby through specialization and so he got you know Ilya Green the 400 meter runner he got Chloe Dalton from uh, basketball he got two wizards from touch football he got a tough Maori uh, rugby league player and he assembled his you know the old dirty dozen movie the everyone's got their own unique skill sets and they took on and slayed the mighty dragon of New Zealand and the story of him doing that is um, really quite amazing a testament and he's gone on the journey that a lot of males are going through in coaching women where he realizes outside some differentials in power, they're exactly the same. They love the game as much as we do. They can be as skilled. And this is the first time women, a women's team ever got the chance to go full time. They always had that thing in the back of their mind of I'll never know how good I was. Like men have that as a right. These are the first women that got that. And look what happened. They were simply mesmerizing and unbelievable. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because yet again, like your Olsen biography, this is a story where you get the chance to talk about great leadership with the coach and also overcoming a prejudice, which is not racism, but sexism. So there is a pattern here with you. Same group of men and these people that have to overcome. I'm really interested in people that have to go through more than others to do the thing they love. I, th- I find that really fascinating. And we're talking about the same group of, of men whose group I, I'm nominally a member of, but they're great stories and a country is its history. It's the sum of all of its stories. And this story should sit along all of the other side stories with great sunlight being put on it. And no one's told the story. So I thought um, this needs context. This needs the story of the struggle of women's sport, how this team slotted in and pushed the whole thing forward because after it, there was a crazy crapshoot. Everyone wanted to put money in sport after after these girls strutted their stuff because they were they were tough girls, they were girly girls, there was everyone in there and it just showed, put girls in camp for three years and look at the magnificence that can be achieved. And continuing in his vein of excavating untold stories, Patrick Skeen has another book after the next one lined up, telling the story of the contribution of Chinese migrants to Australian sport from the days of the goldfields on. I think he's hit on a winning formula that allows him to expose prejudices and attitudes while celebrating talented individuals and teams. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on the platform where you listen to us. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We're lucky to live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Mm-hmm.